Well, I've titled the message this evening, How Can I Know? How Can I Know? Now, the Lord had just promised Abraham that he would have a son. Actually, what the Lord did is he confirmed a promise he made to Abraham ten years earlier that he would have a son. And Scripture says Abraham believed God, and it was imputed, accounted to him for righteousness. Abraham's faith received the righteousness of Christ to his account. And he believed God. Now look what he says in verse 8. Genesis chapter 15. He said, Lord God, whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it? Now some people say this is a question of unbelief. Some people say this is a question of faith. I suppose it could be either. Just two verses earlier, so he believed him and it counted to him for righteousness. I tend to think this is a, a question of faith, but I suppose it's possible. It's a, it's a question of unbelief. And it would be a question of unbelief to ask God, how do I know you're going to keep your promise? That's a question of unbelief to say, how do I know you're going to keep your promise? Because this is what we know. God always keeps his promise. He always keeps his word. But a person who believes God could honestly ask this question, how do I know? How do I know that the gospel is true? How do I know that God has saved me? I think that's a question, if it's in our mind, we ought to have answered, don't you reckon? How do I know? Am I just religious? Is this just my habit? Or has God saved me? How do I know? Do you know you can know the answer to that question? And I hope by the time we leave here this evening... Every one of us will leave here knowing whether or not God has saved us. So the first point, and this is the main issue of the whole message, the answer to the question, how do I know if God has saved me? The answer to the question is by looking to the sacrifice of Christ. Look here at verse 9. He said unto him, Take me an heifer of three years old, and a she-goat of three years old, and a ram of three years old, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he took unto him all these, and divided them in, in the midst, and laid each piece one against another. But the birds divided he not. Now the Lord tells Abraham, Take these five animals, and prepare them to sacrifice them. And each one of these animals pictures Christ our sacrifice. First of all, each of these animals, under the, the law that would be given 400 years later, each of these animals are clean animals. And that's a picture of the, the holiness and the righteousness of Christ. Now, it's very important that the Savior be without sin. He must be holy. He must be righteous. He must be clean. And here's why. Because he can't put away our sin if he has any sin of his own. And he came. He's, he is altogether righteous, perfectly clean, perfectly holy. And here's the way we know that God has saved us. If we look to Christ to be all of our righteousness. I know I need holiness and I look to Christ. I, by looking, I mean this. I mean to depend upon Christ. I depend upon Him to be my holiness. I depend upon Christ to make me righteous by His obedience for me. Not by my obedience to the law or not my good works you know, that I can add to Him to finish up the job. Saving faith, trust Christ to be all of my righteousness and all of of my holiness. And if God has saved you, I promise you this is what you believe. Christ is your righteousness. You look to him to be your righteousness. Second, each of these animals 
are three years old. They're each in the prime and strength of their physical life. And again, that's a picture of Christ our sacrifice. He was sacrificed in the prime of his earthly life, roughly 33 and a half years old. And here's the picture and why that's important. Christ was crucified in the prime strength of his life. He didn't die of old age. He didn't die because he had some disease in his body that made it so his body wasn't strong enough you know, to continue to live. Christ died because he gave up himself. He gave himself to be made sin for his people. And he willingly suffered and he willingly died to put all of that sin away by the sacrifice of himself. He willingly died. He gave himself to die so that his people would never die. See, when Christ died, he did not die in weakness. Christ died in power. It's the only person who ever lived that can be said of. Christ died in power. His death had the power to put the sin of his people away and to make them righteous. The power of his death. And if God has saved you, you trust the sacrifice of the powerful Savior to put away your sin. He's your only hope that your sin has been put away. And you know this, you cannot die the second death because Christ willingly, on purpose, died for you. He gave up the ghost to die so that you would not, will not die. And then third, each of these animals, each picture something different that's specific about the sacrifice of Christ. The heifer. First animal is a heifer. The heifers, they were used for, for purification. That's what the ashes of the red heifer were all about. Everybody's, is, the red heifer was, isn't mentioned very much in scripture and everybody's all in tears trying to figure out about this red heifer. The red heifer is a very simple thing. Its ashes were used for purification. That's what it was used for. Well, that's the sacrifice of Christ, isn't it? His sacrifice purified all of his people. He purified them, made them holy, made them righteous, made them without sin. And here's how he did it. You know how he made them without sin? He took their sin away from them. <laughs> and he's the one that suffered and died. His blood cleansed away all that sin. And if God has saved you, your only hope of standing before God pure, your only hope that you ever appear pure in God's sight is the blood of Christ, that he was sacrificed for you. Then there's the goat. The goat has to do with the sin offering. You remember on the Day of Atonement, there were two goats that they used, and they were for the sin offering. The high priest would lay his hand on the head of that goat, and he would confess the sins of Israel upon the head of that goat, and he would symbolically transfer the sin of Israel to that goat. Then one goat would be killed. One goat would be sacrificed as the sin offering. There's got to be death for sin. Sin was symbolically transferred to that goat. The goat's got to die. Just like our Lord Jesus Christ. The sin of God's people wasn't symbolically transferred to him. It wasn't just a pretend thing. He was made sin. He was made sin. The father did not put an innocent man to death at Calvary. He put a guilty man to death. I can't understand that and I can't explain that. But the father never would have killed his son if he hadn't made him guilty of sin. The sin of God's people was transferred to him and he had to die for it. The sin offering. That's what the goat represents, the sin offering. Now there was another goat on the Day of Atonement, wasn't there? That goat was the scapegoat. And the uh, 
fit man would take that goat and lead it out into the wilderness. And he'd leave that goat. And that goat was never seen from again. Seen or heard from again. And the fit man would, would come back. That's a picture of what happened when Christ died for the sin of His people. He put it away. It's gone. It will never be seen or heard from again. If Christ died for you, you have no reason to ever fear standing before God in judgment because your sin's not going to make a sudden appearance there. Christ took it away. It's gone. And if, you, if God has saved you, you know this. Salvation is not in your morality. Salvation is not in you sinning less. Salvation is in this. Christ was made sin for you. And He put your sin away. And when He did that, by the sacrifice of Himself, He made you the very righteousness of God in Him. That's the, the goat, the sin offering. Put sin away. Then there's the ram. The ram has to do with the substitute. Substitute dying in our place so we live. I don't know how long it will take us to get there, but for long we're going to get there. That famous story of Abraham and Isaac going up that mountain. And Isaac asked his father, he said, here's the wood. Here's the fire. Where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, my son, God will provide himself a lamb for the sacrifice. And they get up to the top of that mountain and there had to be a discussion here between father and the son. Abraham never could have laid Isaac on that altar against his will. Abraham's an old man. Isaac's a young, strong man. Never could have done it. Somehow in agreement with what his father told him, Isaac laid down on that altar. His father bound him to that altar. He raised the knife, getting ready to plunge that knife into his son. And Abraham's intention was to quarter the body of his son, his only son, and burn it with fire. That was his intention. And he raised the knife to do it. God said, Abraham, hold everything. And Abraham looked. And behind him, in the thicket, there was a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. And Abraham took the ram and he offered him up in the stead of his son Isaac. Isaac lived because the substitute died in his place. Now God said there's got to be a sacrifice. There's got to be death. Isaac came down that mountain for one reason. There was a substitute. And there was death on top of that mountain. The substitute died so Isaac could come down. Therefore they went up that mountain Abraham told his servants, you boys stay here. I and the lad are going to go yonder and worship. And we're coming back. We are coming back. He did, didn't he? Because the substitute died in his place. And if God has saved you, your only hope of eternal life is that Christ died as your substitute. That he took your sin away from you and he suffered everything that you deserve. That's the only way God won't send you to hell is if Christ the substitute already suffered everything that your sin deserves and he died as your substitute so that you can live. That's your only hope. Then there are the two birds, the turtle dove and the pigeon. Now these, the turtle dove and the pigeon were the birds that poor people would use to offer sacrifices. They're too poor to, to buy a lamb or a goat or a bullock or something, you know, to be sacrificed. And if you were too poor, you'd bring the, the turtle dove and a pigeon. I guess they were real cheap and plentiful. People could have, even the poor people could afford them. 
And here's the picture. The Lord Jesus Christ is the sacrifice for poor and needy sinners. They're bankrupt. They've got nothing to bring. And Christ is their sacrifice. And if God has saved you, you know this. You are spiritually bankrupt. You have nothing to offer to God. Before or after regeneration, you've got nothing to offer to God to make God happy with you. Your only hope is that Christ would be sacrificed for you. And that's who he sacrificed himself for. Poor, needy sinners who can't do anything save themselves. Now, if you think you can do something to help Christ save you, he's not your sacrifice. He's only the sacrifice for poor people. The only hope we have is that the Lord Jesus Christ, the the Prince of Glory, would humble himself to sacrifice himself for poor sinners like you and me. That's what the turtle dove and and the pigeon represent. Now, Abraham got these animals together. Notice what the Lord said. He said, take me a heifer and a goat and a ram and take these birds. Take me these things. The sacrifice is for the Lord. The sacrifice is offered to the Lord. The, The sacrifice is offered to appease the holy anger of the one that we've sinned against. We've sinned against God. Something's got to be done with his anger. Something's got to be, he's offended. Something's got to be offered to him that will, that will please him, that will appease his justice, that will enable him to be just and justify his people from their sin. And that's what happened with these pictures of, uh, of Christ's sacrifice. Look at, at verse 12. After Abraham had taken these sacrifices, and when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And lo, a horror of great darkness fell upon him. And look down at verse 17. And it came to pass that when the sun went down, and it was dark, behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passed between those pieces. Now a deep sleep came on Abram, and a horror of darkness came upon him. And part of the vision that he saw at that time was this. He saw the animal sacrifices and this smoking furnace and this burning lamp passing through the the sacrifices. And here's the picture. When Christ was sacrificed for sin, a horror of great darkness came on all the earth. God turned the sun off. I mean, it's just like, I always view it like the sun is just refusing to shine on the horror that's taking place on God's creation. That the Son of God is dying for sin. And in that darkness, that gross darkness, that's where the awful business of the sacrifice for sin was being made. It was taking place, this business between the Father and the Son. And it happened there in darkness. Man cannot see what's going on. And that's just fine. Because the sacrifice is not for us. The sacrifice is offered to God. That smoking furnace that that Abram saw, that's the fiery furnace of God's wrath against sin. And the Lord Jesus had to pass through that furnace alone. And he had to to go into the furnace now. He, He had to do it and he had to do it alone. And he stayed in that smoking hot furnace until the sin of God's people was gone. He stayed in the furnace till the Father's justice against sin was satisfied. And God said, it's enough. Now again, if God has saved you, that's the only hope 
you have of salvation. That's the only hope that you have of, of not being in hell and being in heaven in, in, in God's presence because Christ suffered for you. He suffered what you deserve as your sacrifice. And the burning lamp is a picture of God the Holy Spirit enabling God's people to see in the darkness. We're born in darkness. We're born blind, spiritually blind, aren't we? And when the Holy Spirit gives light and he gives us eyes to see, what do we see? What do we see? Well, if the Holy Spirit's the one giving us the light, we always see Christ. We see that Christ is all. The Savior said the Holy Spirit will come and take the things of mine and he'll show them to you. The Spirit comes and He shows us Christ. He shows us the sacrifice of Christ. We know what Christ crucified means. This is the only way I could be saved. If He took my sin and He suffered and died to put it away. The Spirit makes us see, oh, now I see why Christ was crucified. It's the only way God can be just and still justify a sinner like me. God's justice had to be satisfied and then He can be merciful to me. That's the only way God could be merciful to me is if he put my sin away first by the sacrifice of his son. Now the Lord told Abraham, take these sacrifices for me, for me. The sacrifice was for the Lord. And here's why. Because before the Lord can ever do something for sinners, he's got to do something for himself. Before the Lord could be merciful to sinners, He's first got to satisfy his justice. He's first got to satisfy his holiness so that it's right for him to show mercy to sinners. He can't show mercy to sinners by ignoring their sin, can he? No, he can only show mercy to sinners if his justice is satisfied first. See, everything God does must be right. It must be holy. So he can't ignore sin. If God's going to be merciful, he's got to satisfy his justice first. He's got to put away the sin first. Then he can be merciful to sinners. God can be merciful to sinners like you and me because Christ died. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission. Well, Christ died and there is remission. He went through that furnace alone and there is remission. Sin is gone. Now God can be merciful. Now God can be gracious to his people. God has a covenant of grace. Purpose of grace. He's purposed to be merciful to his people and spare his people and save them, make them just like his son. And that entire covenant is based on the blood of Christ. Is based on the sacrifice. Look at verse 18. In the same day, after Abraham saw this vision of the, the sacrifice and the smoking furnace, in that same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying unto thy seed have I given this land. From the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates. And you can name all those tribes that live there. <laughs> They're no problem. God's going to drive them out. This is the covenant of grace. I'm going to give you this land. And when did he, when did he tell Abram about this covenant? After the sacrifice. It's all based upon the blood of Christ. And if God has saved you, this is what you, you see Christ. The only way you can be saved is through the merits of the Lord Jesus Christ, by Him suffering what you deserve. You see and you understand, the only way God could accept me is in Christ. And you don't just grudgingly accept it like, you know, 
that's the only, well, it's the only way it can be, so okay, you know. You love it that way. You love it that way. Now, do you believe that? Do you believe that Christ is all of your salvation? Do, do you love it? The salvation comes to you through the sacrifice of Christ. He puts your sin away. If so, that's your only hope of salvation. God saved you. He saved you. He's giving you that faith. Now, second, God has saved you if God is the one that brought you to Christ. Look back at verse 7, our text. And he said unto him, I am the Lord, Jehovah, that brought thee out of Ur of the Chaldees to give thee this land to inherit it. Now, you know, Abraham wasn't always living there in the land of Canaan, was he? He wasn't always walking around there in the land of Canaan. He used to live in the Ur of the Chaldees. He used to be down there an idolater. And God brought him out. Abraham didn't decide one day to go out on his own. He left because God brought him out, didn't he? He came to the land of Canaan because that's where God brought him. Well, if God has saved you, you haven't always been saved. <laughs> if we're going to be saved, we've first got to get lost, don't we? God's got to find us. God's got to be the one to save us or else we would have stayed lost. If God has saved you, you weren't always a good boy or little girl. You were an idolater. Just like Abram, you were an idolater. You're worshiping an idol of your imagination or somebody else's imagination that they are preaching to you instead of Christ. More likely what you're doing in some form or fashion was worshiping yourself. Worshiping what you can do to and just being real proud of what you can do to make God happy with you. Now your idol may have gone by the name of Jesus, but that didn't mean you're saved. You're just talking about another Jesus. That's what Paul called him, another Jesus. Just because you use the name of Jesus didn't mean you're saved. You're still just lost as a golf ball in the foot of snow. You're lost. And if God has saved you, now you see. See, I was lost. Now I'm found. I was blind. Now I see. And again, I ask you, what do you see? Well, if God has saved you, you see Christ. You see that he is your all. And you know why you see that? If you see Christ, you see Him as your all, you believe Him and you love Him. You know why that is? Because God Almighty brought you out of idolatry in the Ur of the Chaldees and He brought you to Christ so that you see Him and believe Him. And you weren't saved till you saw Christ, till you heard Him preach and you believed Him. Abraham wasn't saved down there in the Ur of the Chaldees. He wasn't saved and he was bound down worshiping to an idol and you weren't either. God doesn't save anybody in false religion. God's never going to use the preaching of a lie to save anybody. But if God has saved you, he brought you out of that. He brought you out of that business. He reached down and plucked you out on purpose. Left everybody else there and plucked you out and brought you to Christ. And you believe him and you love him because God brought you to him. Now, is that your experience? You couldn't have ever come to Christ. You could never have known Him. You could never believe in any other way except God Almighty picked you up and brought you to Christ. If so, God saved you. Then here's the third thing. If God has saved you, you will contend for the faith. Verse 10 again. And He took unto Him all these and divided them in the midst and laid each piece one against another, but the birds divided He not, and when the fowls came down upon the carcasses, Abram drove them away. 
Now, just as soon as that sacrifice was prepared, and it was out there in the open, the vultures started circling. And then they came down and started attacking. But now notice here, they didn't attack Abraham, did they? They attacked the sacrifice. And Abraham wasn't going to stand for that. I mean, I don't know what he got, a broom or a rake or something. Can't you just see Abraham out there, this 90-year-old man, you know, swatting at these birds and keeping these birds. I mean, he got tired. But he was keeping those birds away from that sacrifice. The sacrifice was for the Lord. And he swatted them away. Now here's the picture. If God has saved you, you can bank on this. It's not going to be long before the vultures start circling. And they're going to attack. Now they're not going to attack you exactly directly. They're going to attack the sacrifice. They're going to attack the sacrifice that you're trusting your soul to. They're going to say, oh, you know, they're going to try to take away from the sacrifice of Christ and by taking something away from it. And they'll say, oh, yes, yes, Christ died. Christ died for sinners. Yes, he died. But, but now you've got to do something to make it effectual. You know, do whatever it is their favorite ceremony is or something. You know, you've got to do something. And if somebody says that, they're taken away from the sacrifice of Christ. If Christ alone alone is not enough to save me, I'll be damned. I know that. I believe that. That I'm going to beat those vultures away with everything I got. They're not going to take away from this. Christ is all. Christ is enough. Then they'll say something like this. Well, well, Christ died for you. Yes. And, and he saved you. He gave you life. But now, you know, you can be saved today and lost tomorrow. You know, you, you got to live a, a righteous life and you... You gotta be moral. You gotta do these, these certain things. You gotta, you gotta give enough. You gotta, whatever, you know, do enough of whatever their favorite religious thing is, you know. You gotta do that in order to keep yourself saved. You know, you could be saved. Christ could save you. You could mess it up and lose it. And you see how that takes away from the sacrifice of Christ, don't you? If Christ is not all of my righteousness, if he's not all of my salvation. If he's not the great shepherd that's going to bring me all the way home and he left me one thing to do in order to be saved, then I won't have any righteousness and I'll be damned. I know that. So I'm going to beat those vultures away with everything I've got. Christ is all I need. Not my works added to it, just him. And then they'll say, yes, there's Christ's sacrifice, but now you got to do some religious ceremonies, you know, in order to be saved. You got to, you got to be baptized. You got to give. You got to, you know, attend a certain number of meetings and stuff. And listen, I am in no way minimizing the importance of baptism. The believer is commanded to confess Christ in believer's baptism. But don't you be baptized in order to be saved. No, don't do it. We're baptized because God's done something for us. Because I see Christ's death, burial, and resurrection is, is my only hope of salvation. Don't you be baptized in order to be saved. Baptism is done as a confession of what God's already done. We're not putting Christ's sacrifice plus something you do, as religious sounding as it is, in order to be saved. You don't have to know all the right doctrines. You know, I know people are just worried that how easily it is somebody out there in false religion can, can trip them up on doctrine and confuse them up and, and they just don't know all the right way to say it and stuff. 
They want people to pass all their tests, live up to their standards, you know, or their religious standards. You see how that takes away from the sacrifice of Christ? If Christ did everything but leave me one step to take into heaven, I'll be damned. Christ did it all. He's everything I've got. He's all of my hope. And I'm going to beat those vultures away with everything i got. That's contending for the faith. And if God has saved you, you just cannot stand hearing the gospel compromised. You can't stand the compromising salvation in Christ alone, and you can't stand it because he's all your hope. When people start compromising these things, they take away your hope. They take away from the sacrifice. Then God has saved you. All right, here's the fourth thing. If God has saved you, he will try your faith. Look at verse 12. And when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and lo, and horror of great darkness fell upon him. And he said unto Abraham, Abram, know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and they shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years. And also that nation whom they shall serve, I will judge. And afterward shall they come out with great abundance. Now God tries the faith of everybody that he saves. And that's what this, this is a picture of. The children of Israel going down there in, in Egypt. What a trial that had to be for the children of Jacob, the children of Israel. They went down there because Joseph was in charge. And life was good when Joseph was in charge. They lived there about 30 years while Joseph was in charge. And then there arose a Pharaoh that knew not Joseph. And he started afflicting the people. And that lasted 400 years. They were there about 430 years. 400 of those years, they were slaves in Egypt. And how horrible, I mean, I just can't imagine how horrible it would be to live as a slave with no rights, that people just do anything they want to you. They, they take your children, and, and Pharaoh did, took all their boy babies and killed them, and threw them in the, the River Nile. And, I mean, just having no rights and just the, the abuse and living that way. What a trial that was. But you know what? All that was in God's purpose. And God delivered them right on time at the exact moment he promised Abraham. He delivered them. 400 years. And the faith of God's elect has to be tried. Has to be. Has to be tried to to be proven to be genuine faith. And not one of us is looking forward to the next trial. But when it comes, and then God delivers us from it, and we may have to have a little space from it, and we'll look back, you know what we'll say? The best thing for me. I learned from that. I remember being the being a boy and getting a spanking from my dad. I didn't like that. <laughs> but looking back now, I said, oh, that was the best thing for me. Best thing. That's what trial is. Trials make our faith more precious. It's like gold that goes into the refiner's fire. It burns off that dross. At least some of it. God's got to burn off the dross. And make us trust Christ even to, to find out how trustworthy 
He is. How we can cast our soul upon Him. And I'm telling you, believer, trials are coming. That's what our Savior promised to say. You know, He didn't try to get followers by saying, oh, you're going you're to have an easy life. He said, this is your lot in life. Trials and tribulations. They're coming. But if God has saved you, He's going to keep you looking to Christ. He's going to keep you depending upon Christ. And you know why you'll do that? Why won't you quit? Because God won't let you. He won't let you quit. He's purposed to save you. And he's going to do it by his power and by his grace. And in his time, he'll deliver you. He always does. Then here's the last thing. If God has saved you, you will trust that God's will, the salvation of his people, is always done. He says in verse 14, Also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge. And afterwards shall they come out with great substance. And thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace. And thou shalt be buried in a good old age. But in the fourth generation, they shall come hither again. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. But God told them, Israel is going to go down there and be slaves in Egypt. And he told them that long before it happened. And one of the reasons is this. So when it happened, we know this thing's not an accident. This is God's will being carried out. And God told them the exact number of years they'd be afflicted in Egypt. And then they're going to be delivered. And this is what they found out. It happened exactly the way God told them they would happen. And when they left, they knew this. This is God's will being carried out. Pharaoh hadn't gone crazy and just letting us loose. This is God's will being carried out. And we've been slaves here for 400 years. We haven't owned a blessed thing in four years hundred years and we're leaving here this night with all the riches of Egypt not because we went in there with big swords and took them away from people and threatened them and made them give us their life savings people are coming throwing it at us and telling us get out we left we spoiled Egypt just because they gave it to us we left here in abundance almighty God has a purpose of redemption and the ultimate glorification of his people. That's God's will. And he's going to do it. Because he always does his will. Always. And you know to the believer. Much, much, much of this life. Is spent in bondage. It feels like we're just. We're just. Trudging through a life of slavery in Egypt. It just feels like just one thing after another comes up. We're just making bricks without straw. Just feel utterly helpless and utterly worn out. I was talking to a dear dear friend of mine this week. And he said, you know, I trust God. He said, I do. I trust God. He said, but I'm wore out. <laughs> I'm wore out with this thing. I mean, I'm wore out. Mentally, physically, I'm wore out. I believe God. I trust God. I'm worn out. You're making bricks without straw ending. I mean, just... just Trudging through this veil of tears here, here below. Oh, and I'm telling you. I don't want to get into tomorrow's message this funeral, but I'm telling you. This world is not all there is. We're war, yeah, we're wore out with this world. Of course you are. In God's exact time. Now, don't get, when we get discouraged, it's because we set our sights too low. We're looking here too low. We're looking here below. 
Instead of looking what's coming. In His exact time, the Lord's going to come and He's going to deliver His people. He's going to take them out of the darkness of this world. He's going to take them out of this sinful flesh that we've got to live in. And He's going to bring us to glory with great substance. Great substance. What is that great substance? Is it you're so rich you walk on streets of gold and you don't want to scrape the gold off the ground? Is it seeing pearly gates? Is, is, is the great substance we're going to come into glory with, is that seeing that, that white robe choir all singing around and, and singing? and uh, you know, Everybody says that like they're looking at the choir, like the choir singing to them or something, you know. I, if I'm not mistaken from what Scripture says, the believer's in the choir. You know, we're not watching. We're, we're participating in that whole deal. Is it having a, a big mansion? So you, you can look back at your buddies that you used to attend Hurricane Road with and say, got a better mansion than you. Is that your great substance? No. The great substance of every believer is being made just like Christ. And how we long to see Him now, don't we? Always more, never less. We're always wanting more, aren't we? And we see. The Spirit gives us light to see, but hmm, it's through a glass darkly, isn't it? I see. Well, I'm studying it. I see this. And I go out of the study and go somewhere and how did I forget? How did I forget so soon? There we'll see him face to face. And you're not going to care if there are streets of gold and pearly gates. Because <laughs> all you're going to see is him. And to be made just like him. Now that's what you've got to look forward to. If God's the one saved you. That's a blessing, isn't it? That's a blessing. I hope God will make it so. Let's bow together. Our Father... Oh, how we thank you for the fully sufficient sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. How you've given, we thank you that you've given us so many types and pictures and promises. You've given us an account of the actual sacrifice. The sacrifice of our blessed Savior put away the sin of his people. Father, how we thank you. And how I pray that you'd give us a heart of faith that would latch on to Christ our Savior. And we find such hope and peace and comfort and trust in Christ that He is all that we need. He's all that is required of us. Father, I, I pray that You'd take Your Word and apply it to the hearts of those who are gathered here this evening. Cause us to believe. Cause us to be able to leave here knowing God has saved me. And the evidence is because I trust Christ. It's in His blessed name. It's for His glory. We do ask this great blessing, Father, for ourselves. We're mercy beggars. We're begging mercy. But, Father, for Your great namesake, would You be merciful to us? In our day, in this day, tonight, would You show us Your glory in revealing Yourself and Your redemptive power to Your people? It's in the precious name of Christ our Savior. For His sake and His glory, we pray. Amen. All right, Sean.